and welcome to the Security DNA Podcast produced by SecurityInfoWatch.com. I'm John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch and the producer of this podcast. The editors here at Security InfoWatch are utilizing this podcast to provide detailed, actionable information of value to security professionals. This includes industry news, trends and analysis, technology solutions, policy risk analysis, and management. This episode, I have with me my colleague, Steve Lasky, who's the editorial director for the security group at Endeavor Business Media. Steve will be talking today with Lynn Metais, who is president and founder of the National Economic Security Alliance. NESA is a nonpartisan grassroots-based nonprofit initiative that is a resource to metropolitan area public and private sector entities. NESA is dedicated to educating public and private sector enterprises relative to the broad range of risks, threats, and hazards they face. Lynn is also Managing Director of Matthijsen Associates, a management consulting firm specializing in conducting enterprise risk assessments implementing IP and brand protection measures, and establishing broad-based risk intelligence programs. Lynn has a strong track record as a senior executive for three major U.S.-based global corporations and one mid-cat company in dramatically different business sectors. His experience base traverses the defense and intelligence, electronics, life sciences, consumer products, and service industries. And with that, let's turn it over to Steve. All right. Appreciate that, uh, John. Uh, Lynn, you know, we've, I've been looking to have you on for uh, uh, a while here, and I'm glad we could actually carve out some time here. Uh, you know, one of the issues that we see when we're talking about uh, enterprise risk management models is uh, they're just absent, uh, that organizations either lack the will or the agility to change uh, or simply are just resistant to change to uh, establish any type of uh uh, platforms or uh, uh, protocols that uh, ERM models uh, uh, require. Uh, how would you advise organizations that uh, must be agile and adaptable uh, as we're looking at a more evolved business landscape uh, that are still resistant to change and how that change can not only stifle innovation and growth in their own organizations, but have significant security and risk implications? Well, I think it kind of basically uh, evolves from what I call the ostrich theory of management that a lot of senior executives operate by. And that that evolves from a concept of, well, the, the probability of happening to us is really remote and we'll deal with it if it occurs. And what happens is when companies operate with that kind of a philosophy, that's when they either have very significant disruptions in their operations or fail completely because they haven't taken into account the risks that they face in the environment that they're operating in and, and really understanding the risk profile of their enterprise and the kinds of things that can ultimately disrupt their company to the point of disaster. Um, I'm still amazed at the number of senior executives that I talk to from the board level through CEOs and uh, other senior executives that have operations in China that are su really surprised and don't even want to believe that if you go to China, you shouldn't take your phone with you and you shouldn't take, you should have a clean laptop that you take with you because as soon as you turn on the phone, China Intel 
will uh, uh, download a app onto your phone that allows them from China to turn on your your uh, microphone and even your camera uh, and totally unaware of you as well as they allow them to track everything that's going on on your computer uh, and every, every email you get on your uh, phone. So uh, it, it comes to a realization that senior executives need to really grasp the whole concept of if it can happen, it can happen to us. And it's kind of a, a, a good segue into the next question because we're looking at, uh, as far as global organizations go, protecting security infrastructure certainly is one of their biggest challenges. You know, not only are more global organizations facing potentially crippling cyber threats, but businesses are also facing challenges that uh, for maintaining robust security infrastructures to protect their data, operations, and other assets. When you're looking at an ERM strategy, uh, how can it be instrumental in developing effective security strategies, uh, risk mitigation uh, uh platforms and promoting security awareness within the organization. I mean, a lot of these things, like you just talked about it, are, are going to probably uh, require breaking down some of the barrier resistance and also looking at some cultural changes. So, so how do you do all that? Well, I think the biggest uh, concept that most security executives need to grasp is really understanding their environment. Um, I'm still dumbfounded by the number of uh, senior security executives that do not regularly go around and have a discussion with every one of the senior executives in their enterprise. Um, one of the philosophies that I think made my organization effective in the different enterprises that I ran as CSO was we had a philosophy of knowing more about the company than the senior executives did. And we would do detailed reviews of everything that was going on in the company. We knew our strategic plan for the corporation inside and out. We'd look at the strategic plans for each of the different enterprises and then would have discussions with each of those senior executives. But we would then do profiles on each of the executives before we meet with them. So we knew something about them to be able to connect with them and then be able to have a discussion with them that would mainly focus on to start with the things that kept them up at night. Um, but once they understood that you understood their environment and, you know, you weren't the knuckle dragger coming in the door, that you were there to actually help them, um, it took on a completely different aspect. And, you know, we, uh, when I was at Northrop back in the 80s and uh, early 90s, uh, we were one of the first enterprises in, I believe, in the country that was developing a security strategic plan, a holistic review of what the security organization needed to do to be able to affect change in the enterprise and support across the entire organization, but also um, communicating on an effective manner the risk profile of the enterprise and the things that can happen to it. And a big part of that came from the development of a, a robust intelligence program that allowed us to understand all of the different issues facing the enterprise, what our competitors were doing, what the government was doing, 
and in the different governments around the world, what the geopolitical risks were, what the protection of intellectual property looked like, um, what the tax environment was, what it took to repatriate profits, uh, a whole range of review that really was, again, a holistic review of where we stood and what could happen to us and then the things we needed to do to be able to counter that and ensure that the company was able to not only survive but thrive. And as a way to really focus on that, we would then really focus in on uh, the key elements that affected each of those business elements. And I can assure you that when we would go back to them and say, you know, we remember the last time we had a chat with you, you indicated that this was a problem with you. And, and we've been researching that and, and we think we may have found a solution for you. And when you start talking to senior executives in that manner and that you're offering solutions to their problems, uh, they quickly become your best friend. And as everybody has faced in the corporate world of the, you know, everybody's got to take a 10% reduction or everybody's going to take a 20% reduction. Um, we'd end up having the entire executive management team fighting to keep our budget in place because they knew the value that we were providing. You know, and that, that begs the point here that we're looking at uh, how things have changed over the last two or three decades or haven't changed. When we look at uh, executives still making mistakes of not considering or even acknowledging uh, the foundational corporate culture uh, that uh, they have in place that magnifies their risk just because uh, they, they, they don't understand what they don't understand. And you and I have had that conversation in the past. And it, probably the most dangerous thing for, a, for an, uh, any executive uh, at a board level is uh, not understanding what he doesn't or understand. And uh, what are some of the best practices that ERM uh, software or just policy and procedures can help uh, in that uh, in that manner in identifying risks uh, that are posed by a business when you're going in to make your presentation and trying to make them understand that you know this is a relaxed company culture and because of that you may be facing fines and penalties and uh, so what would be some of the appropriate controls that can enhance a risk-aware decision-making uh, approach to your business and, and also foster uh, ethical conduct? Well, I think it comes down to a uh, understanding by the senior executives uh, and then across the board to the rest of the enterprise. Um, what they really need to focus on. Um, and by that, I mean, we would not only, you know, do the, the profile and, and put the risk profile in front of the executives. And it comes down to decision-making when you do that of, you know, is this something that we can effectively spend money to counter, uh, or is it too costly to spend money to counter it? Do we have to look at an alternative method to countering that risk? Do we, buy risk insurance to cover it? Do we do a res capital reserve to cover that risk so that in the event that it happens, the company's prepared to deal with it? But I think more importantly than that is where our business intelligence program really paid a lot of advantages was 
allowing us to understand issues that happen to other companies and be able to structure these discussions in a way that here's what happened to company XYZ. And many times it was a competitor. Here's what the impact of that was to them, not only from a business standpoint, delays that they faced, impacts in production, impacts in delivery, whatever the case may be. But more importantly, um, the loss of potential market share and then having the discussion with senior executives of if that happened to us, what would the impact be? What do you think would happen to us if this took place? And those kinds of discussions open the eyes and open the awareness uh, and uh, acceptance of understanding the risk environment that they're in and makes them much more willing to listen. Uh, and then we would use those same methodologies in awareness programs across the enterprise so that uh, the average employee understood the risk that they were facing. And, you know, we went out many times and we would talk with the employee base about how executive recruiters uh, come in and, uh, or competitive, particularly, this was a good tactic of uh, competitive intelligence programs, was to feign that they were uh, executive recruiters and call people up and say, you know, this is a lucrative opportunity, you know, it's going to be, you know, 2x your current salary, uh, all kinds of things like that and then probe into the things that they were doing, particularly in the R&D environment and things of that nature that would really allow them to gain insights into our leading edge or next generation activities. And by making people aware of those kinds of social engineering attacks that would be taking place, um, we had a dramatic increase of employees reporting those kinds of activities to us, uh, getting the name and phone number of the individual that was involved, uh, calling them so that they they would feign that they needed to call them back because they needed to step into a meeting uh, and gain, gain the information. Now, in many cases, we would call that number because we had uh, uh, hidden numbers that we used to do this work from. And we would find that that number didn't exist or, or that person didn't exist, which didn't surprise us in any way. But in occasions we did, did get a hold of people like that. And, you know, we would, you know, very clearly lay out what would happen to them if they continued down this path with our company. And it, it allowed us to better position the company to operate in the environments we were in and to, be able to thwart the kinds of threats uh, to the greatest extent that we uh, could possibly do with um, trying to get everybody on board and, and operating in the same manner. You know, it's interesting you talk about the uh, the social engineering of uh, of recruiters and uh, and uh, job and uh, employment uh, uh, companies that. Uh, uh, like you said, are, are just doing probing. Uh, I've had it. We, we had just this week. I had a conversation with a couple of uh, my uh, colleagues that are in the cybersecurity side, and apparently, this is uh, gaining uh, more steam uh, with the prevalence of uh, uh, more advanced social media platforms. Uh, we're seeing uh, uh, social media. Uh, uh, posts on LinkedIn, 
and uh, Facebook, Instagram that uh, uh, are, uh, again, just fronts for uh, counterintelligence groups looking to probe in organizations. So I, it, it, it's it's funny that uh, um, as we advance and sophisticate uh, and have more sophisticated technology means uh, the root uh, analysis of, of of these issues remains the the, the same. And uh, again, that sort of uh, brings to to light a uh, I guess a conundrum uh, in our present uh, business uh, uh, environment. Uh, it's it's not only uh, you know, the human and social engineering issues that we need to be worried about when we're talking about uh, uh, addressing uh, risk. Uh, we've got innovative uh, innovation and emerging technologies that are disrupting disrupting core business models, uh, and uh, they can be just as uh, uh, damaging uh, and, and 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 insipid as is the the human side so talk a little bit about how some of the emerging technologies of today and uh, and, and goodness knows we've got uh, a basket full we can talk about from uh, from ai to to chat gpt uh and and, and deep fakes how, how are these emerging technologies disrupting core business models and affecting uh, the risk posture of companies well, actually, that's one of the areas we're focusing on uh, as one of the sessions in uh, April 24's uh, uh, upcoming Executive Summit Series annual forum that we put on. Uh, we're going to be focusing on what the impact is of some of these new emerging technologies, uh, both positive and negative. Um, but I think what is really disconcerting is with the advent of AI, uh, the ability to social engineer um, by even utilizing the same voices of uh, executives and others that uh, you know would get people motivated to answer questions. Um, you know, if you get a, a senior engineer who gets a call from the CEO uh, and it's the CEO's voice that's talking to him asking him questions about where they're at on this project or that project or you know things of that nature uh, they're more than likely going to respond to it um, and so that's a big concern factor in educating employees about it um, the other portion of it is facilitating fraud um, that's going to be an area that i think is going to be a, a burgeoning area of concern for security executives as they deal with some of these new technologies because uh, we've seen time and time again the fraudulent activity of you know moving hundreds of thousands or even not even millions of dollars from uh, corporate accounts to pay another company or another enterprise um, being spoofed as the ceo or the cfo telling the uh, financial person to take these actions and that's critical it needs to be done immediately um, and so putting the controls in place to never allow for voice transition or an email transition that it still takes those dual signatures or um, it has to be a secure sign-off system um, that is uh, extremely well protected inside the enterprise 
to allow those kinds of dual signature authorizations of any activity that involves uh, movement of funds. And I think uh, that comes back to also uh, establishing within the enterprise uh, the authority for individuals to take risks. That's one of the things we look at when we do an enterprise risk management review. Do they have a structured program that says who can sign off on risk and what types of risks individuals at what levels can sign off on? Um, because you can't have somebody you know, being able to put the entire enterprise at risk to take an action that should have potentially required a board action um, to accomplish. Um, you know, that's how we're going to see companies failing um, as a result of it. And as we get uh, more and more sophisticated actors from um, the foreign adversary nations uh, that are listed on uh, the Commerce Department's list of foreign adversary nations, we're going to see more and more issues like this evolve um, and the movement of funds being obfuscated uh, is a challenge for um, enforcement actions because uh, it's so easy with some of these new technologies to be able to obfuscate movement of funds. Uh, so I think that's one of the big concerns that people have to have moving forward. Um, and that's why there needs to be really clear policies of, you know, how much an individual is allowed to um, fund something uh, what their approval authority level is, but also from the risk standpoint, who has authority to sign off on risk and, you know, when does it take two different levels of people to sign off on risk and when does it take board action to sign off on risks? Um, without those things in place uh, and a clear statement of the risk appetite of the enterprise, uh, it's going to be very difficult for companies to be able to really ensure the survivability and viability of the enterprise going on forward. Great, great points, great points. Uh, we, you, you, you touched on, uh, on the China issue uh, previously, but, you know, let's talk about some of the other key business disruptors and challenges that organizations are facing from, from, from bad actors, especially in the environment we're in now. I mean, uh, we're looking at two global conflicts that are having implications across the board, not only uh, potentially with uh, economic disruption, uh, supply chain dis disruption, uh, but also uh, fueling bad actors uh, who are looking at uh, using this opportunity uh, with Russia and Ukraine and and uh, Israel and uh, uh, and the Hamas Palestinian conflict right now to uh, heighten the uh, attacks on cyber uh, infrastructure uh, at organizations uh, around the world, but it seems it's really been lately open season on the U.S. Uh, address that a little bit and what we want to do and then then we can talk briefly about China which I know is is something that is a a topic that you've studied and and you've been very critical about how we uh, approach our uh, our interaction with the Chinese uh, government but let's talk about other threats right now in this world environment 
Well, I think cyber threat is one of the biggest threats that we're facing uh, in most enterprises. And uh, there's been a recent move to um, reduce CSOs, reduce CSO staffs, things of that nature by enterprises, uh, which is alarming because um, this is an area that probably produces one of the greatest vulnerabilities to corporations today. Uh, and again, it comes back to the senior executives not really grasping and understanding the risk that's associated with it. Uh, and that's why the SEC has started to take action um, and be much more uh, involved in any type of breach activity and the requirements for enterprises to be much more uh, responsive when a uh, cyber threat uh, does occur, a breach occurs, uh, the time frame that they have to report it. Um, you know, one of the things that I think has is, is always been a significant problem, um, and as you know, my, my background in cyber goes back into the 80s, uh, so I've been staying very current with it from um, involvement with the Ponemon Institute and uh, the McCary Institute at uh, Auburn. And, you know, when we focus in on some of these issues, um, one of the problems that exists is the, you know, the, what I call the fox in the, in the chicken coop. And that's the CISO in many cases, because they're dealing with technology, uh, corporate executives put that position in underneath the CIO. And the CIO has to wear multiple hats determining where they're going to spend their funds for um, any type of computer operations. And so they'll shortchange something that the cybersecurity folks know needs to be done because their performance review depends on you know, getting this new program up and operational that's going to improve the productivity of the enterprise. Um, the last enterprise that I was involved with uh, as a CSO, um, I, I had a fully integrated organization and the CISO reported to me, uh, which the CIO frankly actually liked because that put the CIO into a different position of uh, not having to make those kinds of decisions. So for instance, we would um, operate a parallel system that we would do all testing of any new software or any new system upgrade, um, um, middleware upgrade, uh, or a new system that they wanted to install. Because we wanted to understand what the impact could possibly be on other systems that we had operation, operating that were critical to the enterprise. We had a very strong structure that nobody could download software onto the system. They had to come through and have it reviewed by us. And we, we were the final authority on, on whether it could be installed or not because we would do vulnerability testing on it and understand the impact that it could have on the enterprise. And then we ran a very tight sock to understand what, what our attacks were. And here comes back to the inter inter uh, intelligence program. Um, and we were successful with our controls because knowing what was happening to other enterprises in our business sector uh, allowed us to say, this happened to company XYZ because they didn't have these kinds of controls. What do you think the impact would be for us if we lost all of our computer systems for an entire month? But then because we had resiliency as part of our portfolio, 
we were constantly doing testing of backup systems and support systems in the, in the event that we had system failure. So that for instance, our order taking process, we had a manual backup system for it so that in the event that we lost computing power, we were able to continue for our folks to be able to take orders over the phone and be able to process them as soon as the computer system came back up. So it's putting all of those things in place. So again, going back to the holistic approach to how you operate a, uh, an entire enterprise risk management program. And, and that's why I, I actually quit using the word security years ago. And I would always just talk to executives about risk. I didn't talk to them about security. I talked to them about risk and understanding what would happen if they did one thing or did another thing a different way. Uh, and part of our structure that we put in place was to ensure that, you know, they understood that we were the department of yes. We were the department to help them get to where they wanted to get to, but knowing what they needed to do to get there. Um, and I've talked to a number of senior executives in this in the security field who, you know, kind of relish in the fact that they had the power to say no, you can't go to that country. I never told anybody they couldn't go to a country. We would say, here's what we have to do to send somebody there, but just understand that that's the environment that we're in. Or we would pick a third country national that worked for us that could do the job but would not be at risk by sending them into the country in the same way that if we send a US citizen into that country. Uh, or if that country had problems with another country, you know, we wouldn't send people from that third country into that fourth country because of the, the risk factors that they're facing. So when you come back to some of these other issues that we're facing, um, particularly things like the emerging efforts of ChatGPT, uh, can be extremely beneficial for enterprises doing research, uh, can be very beneficial on preparing marketing information and security awareness programs and things of that nature. But a lot of companies have put the kibosh onto it because they found that it can also be used to, as a business intelligence product, if, if you go out onto the open web and use ChatGPT on the open web, and as a result of that, a lot of enterprises now are being able to bring in-house a um, behind the firewall enterprise level chat GPT system to help facilitate those kinds of things within their environment in a protected way. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you know, I think we'll wrap it up here with uh, your take on uh, where we stand with uh, some of the potential threats from the global bad actors uh, uh, on uh, business and 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 and, and security uh, in the U.S. right now, uh, we have the big four. We've got we've got Iran, we've got Russia, we've got North Korea, and we've got China. Uh, I know you have been highly critical of China. Uh, for a long time, you've studied uh, the uh, the risk and the security uh, threats from China uh, on American business. You faced those threats as a CSO at, at uh, major uh, Fortune 50 companies uh, during your career. Uh, right now, what 
posture should we be taking uh, to not only monitor uh, the threats from the big four, but also put safeguards in place to mitigate any type of uh, both physical, or, or not both, but uh, the, the varied economic, physical, and uh, cyber uh, risks that uh, these these four powers uh, have uh, and, and could impact, uh, you know, the, the future of our country. Well, I think it comes back down to executive awareness. Um, you know, the ever since Harvard Business School and Wall Street Journal got together and forced the concept of the senior executives' major portion of their compensation being tied to the stock price of the company uh, is when we saw a lot of actions taking place that have significantly increased the risk profile of most enterprises. Um, you know, Milt Friedman, the, the famous economist, said people are going to go to China, you know, with with hat in hand to try to get business there because if they could sell one apple to 1.5 billion people, uh, they'd make a ton of money. Uh, and that was the concept. But people never look, you know, underneath the uh, kimono, uh, so to speak, and look at, you know, what their risks were if they went into that environment. They went in blindly, uh, figuring that, you know, they got to beat their competitors there. They've got to find the lowest price products, they've got to do everything that they can. Um, and China was, uh, again, in their long-term strategy, uh, welcoming all this foreign activity in, uh, and we've seen such a dramatic retrenchment uh, on the surface from um, General Secretary Chi. Notice I don't call him president because they only called them president as a way to make them sound more normalized to the Western world. Um, but make no no mistake about it, they are a brutal dictatorship, uh, and they you know, have done um, incredible things to uh, people within their country, and and frankly, other people. And I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal, but uh, recently, but um, you know, the even Russia has now uh, proposed a new law uh, requiring loyalty to anyone who comes in to their country to sign an oath of loyalty to Russia and that they will not defame or discredit Russia in any way uh, or, you know, talk badly about their military or anything in any negative manner, um, which, you know, is going to be a significant problem for people going there. Um, so those are some of the risks that we're facing there. But but China, you know, if, if just think of what would happen if we had taken a mindset of rather than uh, extending a supply chain all the way around halfway around the world, um, going to Central and South America and building what we built in China in Central and South America, um, and then ultimately being able to take the Western Hemisphere as a full free trade zone. Um, and you know, we've done a lot of research in this area through our nonprofit. And uh, if you take from Canada, all the way to the southern tip of Patagonia, um, you know, there is more people in that western hemisphere than exist in all of China. Um, so we would have I mean, and, 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 Yeah, I mean, but, and, and it's, it's interesting, Lynn, because that really begs the question that this is, that that was certainly a, a missed opportunity. I, I, you know, I'm like, like you, I've read 
some of the treaties about um, strengthening um, the Western Alliance and 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 uh, in the Northern Hemisphere uh, as far as jobs creation and and uh, economic stability that it would have created, uh, like you said, from the tip of Patagonia all the way up to. Uh, to the Arctic Circle, uh, it's a missed opportunity, unfortunately, because uh, some of the issues that are facing us not uh, now, with uh, with problems with uh, the drug trade, with uh, immigration, and, and other things, if you created stability uh, and economic, uh, uh, you know, uh, an environment of economic. Uh, uh, success in other countries that are right at our borders, it certainly would have uh, improved our security and risk posture as well. Well, not only that, but it would have significantly reduced our supply chain length uh, in in an environment where we would have access to uh, all of the rare earth materials that we needed exist in South America. Uh, And guess what? We're finding that we have them in the United States, but you know, we can't get approval to even mine them here in our country. Um, right. You know, so those are some of the, the fallouts that we have to deal with. Um, and so now we've got people going to India and investing in India and in Vietnam, which Vietnam, you know, is is another communist country. And make no mistake about it. It's a communist country. Uh, it's run by a dictator. Uh, and we have to be very careful about what we do as American companies, as Western companies, in where we invest. Um, if you look at all of the investments that have been made in China, and today look at the fact that as a result of those investments, not only have we funded the creation of a military that's larger than ours, has more ships than ours, has more missile capability than we have, um, and we now have them supporting Russia in their battle against trying to take over Ukraine. And if, if we as a, as a world leading, hopefully still leading um, Western civilization, allow a democracy to, to topple to a dictatorship like is being attempted in Ukraine, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And then we see China you know, going into South America and Central America and doing everything that they can to facilitate relationships with a lot of money and, you know, money talks and there's still a lot of uh, corruption that takes place in South and Central and South America. And as a result of that, they're gaining a real strong foothold to our Southern border. uh, And we need to really take a very serious look at that. And if, you know, there's only been over uh, the last couple of years, $160 billion outflow of uh, U.S. or Western funding uh, in, in China that's taking place. But that doesn't even scratch the surface of trillions of dollars worth of funding that we put into that country. And yet they still operate as a under the World uh, Economic Forum as a developing country which, you know, is beyond me when they're the second largest economy in the world. Um, So, you know, we got to be careful about, you know, what we do and always worried about, you know, making the greatest profit that we possibly can because we have created an environment that is probably one of the riskiest environments that the world has faced 
since the end of the Cold War. Lynn, I, I tell you what, it's always great talking with you. Uh, this is a, a very uh, enlightening conversation that we've had today, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, very much for joining us. John, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Well, Steve, I want to thank you and Lynn for this fantastic discussion. Just a reminder to our audience, this podcast is for you so you can stay informed about trends in the security industry anytime, anywhere. To access our podcast lineup, go to podbean.com and search for Security DNA. You can also find our podcasts in our Security Frontline Integrator Newswire and Security Week e-newsletters. Of course, we'd like to get some feedback from you, our listeners, about topics you're interested in. If you have a suggestion, send an email to slasky, L-A-S-K-Y, at securityinfowatch.com. This episode of the Security DNA Podcast was recorded and produced by John Doberstein, Managing Editor of Security InfoWatch. For Steve Lasky, Lynn Matice, and everyone here at Security InfoWatch, thanks for listening and stay safe out there wherever you may be.